0: We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Did you know that whenever you use a website, you give them permission to track what you do online? If you keep the tab open, they can see what you do and create a digital footprint of you. Well, with Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you never have to worry about downloading any risky files, but all of your web browsing will be protected, guaranteeing that you can search freely without leaving any digital footprint, and guaranteeing that you can't be tracked online. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all my audiobooks after publication on YouTube for €5. It is one of the easiest ways to support me in turning this, not just from a hobby or a side thing, into my full-time job. Um, The link is in the description. Let's get started. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Chapter 13 Another View of Hester In her late, singular interview with Mr. Dimmesdale, Hester Prynne was shocked at the condition in which she found the clergyman reduced. His nerve seemed absolutely destroyed. His moral force was abased into more than childish weakness. It grovelled helpless on the ground, even while his intellectual faculties retained their pristine strength or had perhaps acquired a morbid energy which disease only could have given them. With her knowledge of a train of circumstances hidden from all others, she could readily infer that, besides the legitimate action of his own conscience, a terrible machinery had been brought to bear and was still operating on Mr. Dimmesdale's well-being and repose. Knowing what this poor, fallen man had once been, her whole soul was moved by the shuddering terror with which he had appealed to her, the outcast woman, for support against his instinctively discovered enemy. She decided, moreover, that he had a right to her utmost aid. Little accustomed in her long seclusion from society to measure her ideas of right and wrong by any standard external to herself, Hester saw, or seemed to see, that there lay responsibility upon her in reference to the clergyman, which she owed to no other, nor to the whole world besides. The links that united her to the rest of humankind, links of flowers or silk or gold or whatever material, had all been broken. Here was the iron link of mutual crime, which neither he nor she could break. Like all other ties, it brought along with it its obligations. Hester Prynne did not now occupy precisely the same position in which she held during the earlier periods of her ignominy. Years had come and gone. Pearl was now seven years old. Her mother, with the scarlet letter on her breast, glittering in its fantastic embroidery, had long been a familiar object to the townspeople. As is apt to be the case when a person stands out in any prominence before the community, and at the same time interferes neither with public or individual interest and convenience, a species of general regard had ultimately grown up in reference to Hesterpryn. It is the credit of human nature that, except where its selfishness is brought into play, It loves more readily than it hates. Hatred, by a gradual and quiet process, will even be transformed to love, unless the change is impeded by a continually new irritation of the original feeling of hostility. In this matter of Hester Prynne, there was neither irritation nor irksomeness. She never battled with the public, but submitted uncomplainingly to its worst usage. She made no claim upon it in requital for what she had suffered. She did not weigh upon its sympathies. Then, also, the blameless purity of all her life during these years in which she had been set apart to infamy was reckoned largely in her favour. With nothing now to lose in the sight of mankind, and with no hope and seemingly no wish of gaining anything, it could only be a genuine regard for virtue that had brought back the poor wanderer to its paths. It was perceived, too, that while Hester never put forward even the humblest title to share in the world's privileges, further than to breathe the common air, and earned daily bread for little Pearl and herself by the faithful labour of her hands, she was quick to acknowledge her sisterhood with the race of man whenever benefits were to be conferred. None so ready as she to give of her little substance to every demand of poverty, even though the bitter-hearted pauper threw back a jibe in requital of the food brought regularly to its door, or the garments wrought for him by the fingers that could have embroidered a monarch's robe. None so self-devoted as Hester, when pestilence stalked through the town. In all seasons of calamity, indeed, whether general or of individuals, the outcast of society at once found her place. She came not as a guest, but a rightful inmate, into the household that was darkened by trouble, as if its gloomy twilight were a medium in which she was entitled to hold intercourse with her fellow creatures. There glimmered the embroidered letter with comfort in its unearthly ray. Elsewhere the token of sin, it was the taper of the sick chamber. It had even thrown its gleam in the sufferer's hard extremity across the verge of time. It had shown him where to set his foot while the light of earth was fast becoming dim and ere the light of futurity could reach him. In such emergencies, Hester's nature showed itself warm and rich. A wellspring of human tenderness, unfailing to every real demand and inexhaustible by the largest. Her breast, with its badge of shame, was but the softer pillow for the head that needed one. She was self-ordained a Sister of Mercy. Or, may we rather say, the world's heavy hand had so ordained her when neither world nor she looked forward to its result. The letter was a symbol of her calling. Such helpfulness was found in her, so much power to do and power to sympathise that many people refused to interpret the Scarlet A by its original signification. They said that it meant able, so strong was Hester Prynne with woman's strength. It was only darkened by the house that could contain her. When sunshine came again, she was not there. Her shadow had faded across the threshold. The helpful inmate had departed, without one backward glance to gather up the meed of gratitude. If any were in the hearts of those whom she had served so zealously. Meeting them in the street, she never raised her head to receive their greeting. If they were resolute to accost her, she laid her finger on the scarlet letter and passed on. This might be pride, but so like humility that it produced all the softening influences of the latter quality on the public mind. The public is despotic in its temper. It is capable of denying common justice when too strenuously demanded as a right. But quite as frequently, it awards more than justice when the appeal is made, as despots love to have made it, entirely to its generosity. Interpreting Hester Prynne's deportments as an appeal of this nature Society was inclined to show its former victim a more benign countenance than she cared to be favoured with, or, perchance, than she deserved. The rulers and the wise and learned men of the community were longer in acknowledgement the influences of Hester's good quality than the people. The prejudices which they had shared in common with the latter were fortified in themselves by an iron framework of reasoning that made it a far tougher labour to expel them. Day by day, nevertheless, Their sour and rigid wrinkles were relaxing into something which, in due course of years, might grow to be expression of almost benevolence. Thus it was with the men of rank, on whom their eminent position imposed the guardianship of the public morals. Individuals in private life, meanwhile, had forgiven Hester Prynne for her frailty. Nay, more. They had begun to look upon the scarlet letter as the token not of that one sin for which she had borne so long and dreary a penance, but of her many good deeds since. Do, strangers, it is our Hester, the town's own Hester, who is so kind to the poor, so helpful to the sick, so comfortable to the afflicted. Then it is true the propensity of human nature to tell the very worst of itself when embodied in the person of another would constrain them to whisper the black scandal of bygone years. It was nonetheless a fact, however, that, in the eyes of the very men who spoke thus, the scarlet letter had the effect of the cross on a nun's bosom. It imparted to the wearer a kind of sacredness, which enabled her to walk securely amid all peril. Had she fallen among thieves, it would have kept her safe. It was reported, and believed by many, that an Indian had drawn his arrow against the badge, and that the missile struck it, but fell harmless to the ground. The effect of the symbol, or rather the position in respect to society that was indicated by it, on the mind of Hester Prynne herself, was powerful and peculiar. All the light and graceful foliage of her character had been withered up by this red-hot brand, and had long ago fallen away, leaving a bare and harsh outline, which might have been repulsive had she possessed friends or companions to be repelled by it. Even the attractiveness of her person had undergone a similar change. It might be partly owing to the studied austerity of her dress, or partly to the lack of demonstrations in her manner. It was a sad transformation, too, that her rich and luxuriant hair had either been cut off or was so completely hidden by a cap that not a shining lock of it ever once gushed into the sunshine. It was due in part to all these causes, but still more to something else, that there seemed to be no longer anything in Hester Prince's face for love to dwell upon, nothing in Hester's form though majestic and statue-like, that passion would ever dream of clasping in its embrace, nothing in Hester's bosom to make it ever again the pillow of affection. Some attributes had departed from her, the permanence of which had been essential to keep her a woman. Such is frequently the fate, and such the stern development of the feminine character and person when the woman has encountered and lived through an experience of peculiar severity. If she be all tenderness, she will die. If she survive, the tenderness will either be crushed out of her, or, and the outward semblance is the same, crushed so deeply into her heart that it can never show itself more. The latter is perhaps the truest theory. She who has once been a woman, and ceased to be so, might, at any moment, become a woman again, if there were only the magic touch to effect the transfiguration. We shall see whether Hester Prynne were ever afterwards so touched and so transfigured. Much of the marble coldness of Hester's impression was to be attributed to the circumstance that her life had turned, in a great measure, from passion and feeling to thought. Standing alone in the world, alone as to any dependence on society, and with little pearl to be guided and protected, alone and hopeless of retrieving her position even had she not scorned to consider it desirable. She cast away the fragments of a broken chain. The world's law was no law for her mind. It was an age in which the human intellect, newly emancipated, had taken more active and a wider range than many centuries before. Men of the sword had overthrown nobles and kings. Men, bolder than these, had overthrown and rearranged, not actually but within the sphere of theory, which was their most real abode, the whole system of ancient prejudice wherewith was linked much of the ancient principle. Hester Prynne imbibed the spirit. She assumed a freedom of speculation, then common enough on the other side of the Atlantic, but which our forefathers, had they known it, would have held to be a deadlier crime than that stigmatized by the scarlet letter. In her lonesome cottage, by the seashore, thoughts visited her, such as dared to enter no other dwelling in New England. Shadowy guests that would have been as perilous as demons their entertainer could have been seen so much as knocking at her door. It is remarkable that persons who speculate the most boldly often conform with the most perfect quietude to the external regulations of society. The thought suffices them without investing itself in flesh and blood of action. So it seemed to be with Hester. Yet, had Little Pearl never come to her from the spiritual world, it might have been far otherwise. Then she might have come down to us in history, hand in hand with Anne Hutchinson as the foundress of a religious sect. She might, in one of her other phrases, have been a prophetess. She might, and not improbably would, have suffered death from the stern tribunals of the period for attempting to undermine the foundations of the Puritan establishment. But, in the education of her child, the mother's enthusiasm of thought had something to wreak upon itself. Providence, in the person of this little girl, had assigned to Hester's charge the germ and blossom of womanhood to be cherished and developed amid a host of difficulties. Everything was against her. The world was hostile. The child's own nature had something wrong in it which continually betokened that she had been born amiss, the effluence of her mother's lawless passion, had often impelled Hester to ask, in bitterness of heart, whether it were for ill or good that the poor little creature had been born at all. Indeed, the same dark question often rose in her mind with reference to the whole race of womanhood. Was existence worth accepting, even to the happiest among them? As concerning her own individual existence, she had long ago decided in the negative, and dismissed the point as settled. A tendency to speculation, though it may keep a woman quiet as it does man, yet makes her sad. She discerns it may be such a hopeless task before her. As a step, the whole system of society is to be torn down and built up anew. Then, the very nature of the opposite sex, or its long hereditary habit, which has become like nature, is to be essentially modified before women can be allowed to assume what seems a fair and suitable position. Finally, all other difficulties being obviated, women cannot take advantage of these preliminary reforms until she herself shall have undergone a still mightier change, in which, perhaps, the ethereal essence wherein she is truest life will be found to have evaporated. A woman never overcomes these problems by any exercise of thought. They are not to be solved, or only in one way. If her heart chance to come uppermost, they vanish. Thus, Hester Prynne, whose heart had lost its regular and healthy throb, Wandered without a clue in the dark labyrinth of mind, now turned aside by an insurmountable precipice, now starting back from a deep chasm. There was a wild and ghastly scenery all about her, and a home and comfort nowhere. At times a fearful doubt strove to possess her soul whether it were not better to send Pearl at once to heaven and go herself to such futurity as eternal justice should provide. The scarlet letter had not done its office. Now, however, her interview with the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale on the night of his vigil had given her a new theme of reflection and held up to her an object that appeared worthy of any exertion and sacrifice for its attainment. She had witnessed the intense misery beneath which the minister struggled, or, to speak more accurately, had ceased to struggle. She saw that he stood on the verge of lunacy if he had not already stepped across it. It was impossible to doubt that, whatever painful efficacy there might be in the secret string of remorse, a deadlier venom had been infused into it by the hand that proffered relief. A secret enemy had been continually by his side, under the semblance of a friend and helper, and had availed himself of opportunities thus afforded for tampering with the delicate springs of Mr. Dimmerdale's nature. Hester could not but ask herself whether there had not originally been a defect of truth courage and loyalty on her own part in allowing the minister to be thrown into a position where so much evil was to be foreboded and nothing auspicious to be hoped. Her only justification lay in the fact that she had been able to discern no method of resurrecting him from a blacker ruin than had overwhelmed herself except by acquiescing in Roger Chillingworth's scheme of disguise. Under that impulse, she had made her choice and had chosen, as it now appeared, the more wretched alternative of the two she determined to redeem her error so far as it might yet be. Strengthened by years of hard and solemn trial, she felt herself no longer so inadequate to cope with Roger Chillingworth as on that night, abased by sin and half-maddened by the ignominy that was still new when they had talked together in the prison chamber. She had climbed her way since then to a higher point. The old man, on the other hand, had brought himself nearer to her level, or perhaps below it, by the revenge which he stooped for. In fine, Hester Prynne resolved to meet her former husband and do what might be in her power for the rescue of the victim on whom he had so evidently set his grip. The occasion was no longer to seek. One afternoon, walking with Pearl in a retired part of the peninsula, she beheld the old physician with a basket on one arm and a stiff staff in the other hand, stooping along the ground in quest of roots and herbs to concoct his medicine withal. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It is the easiest way to help get this in front of as many people as possible. And reading them really makes my day. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye bye.